1: I know we can all agree that the Greek myths of gods and goddesses have endured and have grabbed our imagination for many centuries. Our guest today, Dr. Jean Shinoda Boland, says they are wonderful vehicles for images, feelings, atmosphere, and depth because the readers or the audience identify with the characters. We begin with our own experience and make a connection. Something rings true and illuminates something important that we didn't recognize before about ourselves. When it reflects a deep truth, this insight is liberating. Dr. Boland's current work contains a myth of the goddess Artemis who represents the indomitable spirit refusing to give up on what she knows to be true for herself. Women and men who identify with this goddess have grit and passion and persistence to go the distance. And this might be just what we need in these threshold times. Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolan is a psychiatrist, Jungian analyst, and an internationally known speaker she is a former board member of the Ms. Foundation, an advocate for the fifth UN World Conference on Women, a convener of the Millionth Circle Initiative, as well as a permanent representative to the UN representing the NGO Pathways to Peace. She's the author of many books, including Goddesses in Every Woman, Crones Don't Wine, Gods in Every Man. The Million Circle, Urgent Message from Mother, Like a Tree, How Trees, Women, and Tree People Can Save the Planet, and Artemis, the Indomitable Spirit of Every Woman. Join us for the next hour as we explore the ancient myth of Artemis and how it can inspire and inform us in these challenging times with our guest, Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, I'll be your host. Welcome new dimensions. Jean, welcome. It's a delightful experience to be here with you again. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much for joining us once more. Um, I would like to begin just talking about myths and archetypes. So why are archetypes important to us in these times?
2: Well, ancient myths, especially the Greek ones, we recognize patterns. They stand out. So... They're important because it's a, it's kind of a shorthand. If you get an image of a Zeus on top of Mount Olympus with lightning bolts, you can fill in how he rules from above, how he punishes with his lightning bolts, and how people sometimes wait for lightning to strike when they oppose the way things used to be and should be from his standpoint, for example. Every single god and goddess in the Greek pantheon resembles a part in every person, actually. But we come into the world with some of them dominant. And when they are dominant patterns, they reach down into the collective unconscious as archetypal, as archetypes and as energy. And when we can live from a deeper place rather than from an idea of who we should be in order to fit in somewhere... Then there is juice, there is energy, there is authenticity as we are who we were meant to be in a sense. I I love the early work of the the childhood book that Marlo Thomas wrote called Free to Be You and Me, in which uh, children were reading stories uh, and dreaming of a world where someday— A girl could grow up to be the woman she was meant to be, and the boy could grow up to be the man he was meant to be. Archetypes actually do give you a pattern of who you were meant to be, along with, say, the talents that go with them. I mean, all human talents, all archetypes are potential in all of us. But we come into the world with our own energized set of them, so that while Every human being has some musical ability. Some people it's a major gift. And for them not to develop that gift is to not express themselves through a major part of who they could have been.
1: So So. Jean, I I know that you went through medical school and they taught you in those early years that babies come in and they're blank tablets. Oh. But that is not (laughs) what you have discovered. They they come in with this, as you say, archetype or or temperament I guess it might be another word for it. Yes,
2: temperament's a good word for it. When you go into the newborn nursery, there are placid babies and there are active babies and there are babies that look around. And yes, I was I was told that we come in with a blank slate, a tabula rasa upon which mainly the mother imprints who the child will be. Well, it was interesting theory and it was absolutely not my experience when I had my own a daughter and son. I think that children and mothers and fathers interact, and if anything, the child trains the mother in certain ways how to respond to it. And what are we responding to? We're responding to the energy and personality that is innate even as in in infancy. Whether you have an assertive baby, whether you have a placid baby, whether you have at three years old, I've written about Artemis and Artemis manifests very early. Uh, she is a little girl who knows what she wants. She's a little girl who at uh, has no problem saying, I want this and I want that, and no, that's not fair, and I wanna I wanna be able to do as much as my little my big brother can do. Uh, that's not every little girl. There's a whole bunch of little girls who who, who don't live up to that pattern, but Artemis does. Artemis has and an innate sense of what's fair and what's not uh, is curious, venturesome, um, often likes animals. You uh, know, uh, this is at three, and in her mythology, she, who is the uh, daughter of Zeus and Leto, did not meet her father until she was three. But there's a, <laughs> at least in the literature, we had this famous poem by Callimachus where she she goes up and meets her father for the first time and sits on. His lap, and he is delighted with this little girl, and so, first of all, he says to her, "With daughters like you, it's worth Hera's wrath, because this is a child that that uh, whose mother uh, was not Hera, and therefore uh, experienced Hera's wrath." But Artemis, at that age, uh, was a daddy's little girl, in other words, and and he said to her. Uh, What would you like? I'll give you anything you want. Now, another little girl might be charming and not know. This little girl said, oh, I want hunting dogs to hunt with. I want bow and arrows. I want girl companions. And I want to choose myself. Now, that is so (laughs) Artemis. That is so she did. And all of them are symbols, the bow and arrow. Uh, You can take aim at a target of your own choosing and focus on it and Aim for it and hit it. So if you have a, an ambition to do something, you can be on your one-track mind if you're Artemis. Focus is a strength. Innate. Um, the, the idea of hunting dogs, that's an almost an, a symbol of instinct. The instinct that sniffs things out, that knows what you want, even if other people don't seem to think that's a very good idea. Uh, that's part of, of, of Artemis. See, She was the goddess of the hunt and the moon. So her preferred area and her friends, she got to choose nymphs who were uh, divine spirits in the forests and basically the wilderness, forests, meadows, uh, lakes and things, and travel with them. So she has a quality of sisterhood. She and her nymph companions roamed over the wilderness. She doesn't like the city like a sister goddess Athena, who much prefers the city. Artemis does not. And metaphorically, she is interested in going into the parts of the geography of the world that she has not explored before. And the geography of the psyche, the wilderness, the unknown places, not the well-mapped out places. So this is, this is Artemis. And as goddess of the moon, she also has a mystical side and a reflective side. I, I really identified with this particular goddess. I can remember...
1: Uh, as a child, I was my daddy's daughter. And, uh, and I, I don't know, I had three other siblings, but I was the one who went out and rode horses and jumped fences and did that. But one time, I, I just recall, and I don't know where this came from, and your book uh, really helped me understand it. I was on a boat trip with my parents, and daddy took a shotgun and shot a duck from the back of the mm-hmm, boat mm-hmm, as we were going yeah. down the Mississippi right, right. River. And I watch, I've never seen him kill anything yeah. before. We I've seen him around guns and do clay pigeons, but this was the first mm-hmm. time. And I, I saw the duck fall into the water, and I saw the duck start to swim to the boat, like for safety, mm-hmm. and then he just blasted it out of the water and, and killed it to put it out of his misery, I guess. I was hysterical. I got so mad at him. I just, here I am. I'm like about, I don't know, eight years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I stood up to this man <laughs> with this gun, and I was just, I was rageful. And I remember his getting down on his knees, breaking the gun down, and saying, Justine, I will not bring this gun out again for the rest of the trip. Woo. And it was like one of my first acts of power to stand up against this. And and this book really helped me understand that it was kind of an innate archetype in me that just reared
2: up towards
1: animals.
2: Right. And that's also why this is the archetype that underlies activists, the environmentalists, the animal rights women, the feminist, uh, any anything that has to do with protecting the young and vulnerable and mothers. She's the only goddess uh, who ever came to the aid of her mother, and she came to the aid of her mother several times. She also was prayed to by women who were in labor to be delivered from the pain, and she is the patron, so to speak, uh, archetype of the midwife. And the herb Artemisia, which is used to relieve pain in labor and preg- pregnancy, is named after her. So she, although she was a virgin goddess, in a sense that she kept her autonomy, she she was never uh, psychologically, or in, in ancient Greece, it meant that she was actually physically a virgin. She and two other goddesses, Athena and Hestia, were the only virgin goddesses. Every other goddess was really susceptible and used to being overpowered by the male gods. In fact, on reading Eve Ensler, I can really look back um, on the, the the Greek mythology and re- recall thinking about Zeus and all those other folks as being philanderers when they actually were rapists. Mm. And the, And ancient Greece was a rape culture.
1: I'm here with Jean Shinoda Bolan, and she's the author of Artemis, The Indomitable Spirit in Every Woman. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, jeanbolin.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
3: I am a woman. I am a woman I am the full woman, I am a full
1: Speaking with Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolan, and we're talking about the goddess Artemis, and uh, it, she's written a whole book about Artemis, and also another another character in Greek folklore that I want to talk about. That's also featured in the book. The book is Artemis: The Indomitable Spirit in Every Woman, and uh, there's another main character in the book. And this is one that that we're not as familiar with, Atalanta. And
2: tell us who is Atalanta. Atalanta is a mortal, for one thing, she's not a goddess, but she was a mortal who exemplified a number of characteristics that were very similar to Artemis because she was a hunter. But she, by the way, also a runner. So when you think about the young women who are naturally athletic and attracted to the outdoors, which is very Artemis, but how many women these days are runners as well? She was known as the fastest. Actually, she became the, the fastest runner in ancient Greece because of a, a famous myth called the foot race and the three apples. But uh, she starts out as a Artemis in a culture that didn't want her uh, when she was born, um, and turned out to be a girl. Her father, the king, was so angry that he did not have a son and heir that he had her. Abandoned on a mountain, uh, to be uh, to die from the elements or from wild animals. But instead, as the story goes, a mother bear came along, and this little human girl evoked the maternal aspect of the mother bear. And in this, as the myth goes, the story goes, uh, she was suckled by the bear, raised in a den, and grew up with a series of uh, cubs as siblings. And then somewhere around the age of three or something that that she was found by hunters and and taught how to use bow and arrow and spears. And then we don't hear from her until a bit later in the story. But this idea of being rejected because you are a girl and then being raised by metaphor of mother bear, which is mother nature, really, that there's so many girls that I've heard of and know of that came from dysfunctional families where, where home was not safe, where mother was powerless or not available, or father was uh, abusive or alcoholic, and home was not safe. So the, the more you could spend out of doors, uh, the girls who naturally would rather spend time at the stables,
1: no, right. <laughs> like you. But you know... Um, there was a period of time in—I'm uh, not sure exactly when it—I it, know it affected my life. Doctor Benjamin Spock, I think, was one of the famous doctor who said we need to put babies on a schedule. Oh, We need right, to right. and to start to feed them formula and not yeah, breastfeed right. them, and and the maternal instinct started to to kind of diminish because all of this was accepted as, oh, this is a scientific way to raise
2: children. Do you have anything to say about that? Uh, there was a period of time when uh, to be a good mother and follow authority was to show who's boss and to uh, impose a will of scheduling on the baby. And what it, what happened then is that mothers suppressed their own natural tendency to pick up a crying baby, uh, could feel... Well, first of all, they were discouraged from breastfeeding. Um, and so a whole generation of mothers who are trying to be good mothers did exactly the opposite of what a good mother bear, mother nature, natural maternal woman would do, which is to hold the baby, respond to the baby. You can't spoil a baby. But what happens when you do the permissive number from the time a child grows from, you know, into in, probably from about... Six through on, there are limits to learn. There's discipline to learn. There's things to learn. So, like the pendulum can swing oh, the opposite did it ever, way. Did it ever become too permissive it it
1: ever. then? So you're saying that then you indulge the
2: kids and you don't show limits. And then what you have is, and, and you you worry about their self-esteem. To such a limit, uh, you know, such a so that you you praise them for every little thing and whatever, and they're not prepared to go into the world for one thing. And the idea of a helicopter mother is that you don't have time for solitude. You don't have time to develop an inner life. There are lots of problems with the pendulum swinging back and forth without a mother instinctively responding to this child who has certain uh, certain personality qualities that need something different than another child, for mm-hmm, example.
1: Mm-hmm. When in going back to the story of Atalanta. Uh, when now she has the bow and arrows, she's she's a fast runner, and um, there's something in the story is the first the, about the boar, the caladon boar. Right. boar. So where did that come into the story, and what's the significance?
2: of Well, that? that was a really famous hunt in ancient Greece. The the men who went on the hunt then uh, a, a comp- were often the fathers of, or they actually were named as going um, to Troy for the, the major Greek mythologies. But what happened is that the king of Caledon failed to honor, respect, offer sacrifices to the goddess Artemis. And he, here he was, king of a country where which was very treed. It was it was naturally Artemis' country, and he sacrificed to everybody else—the gods of the sky, the gods of the earth, the little the the local divinities—and he neglected to honor this goddess, who was outraged, and in her outrage, uh, created out of the mud of a river a huge boar that tore up the countryside indiscriminately destroying whatever trees villages and so the king felt he had to do something and what he did was he invited the heroes of greece to come on this massive hunt knowing that whoever killed the caledon boar would would be famous throughout the land and so the heroes came among them came atalanta who by then had grown to into a beautiful woman who was uh, paired with a brother-like uh, man named Meliagar, who was a prince of Caledon. And the two of them had hunted and uh, together. And so when the hunt was called, both of them came. And initially, where, there was that outrage that said, you know, basically, who invited her? This is a guy's only event. <laughs> and the same reaction that has been part of uh, the reluctance to let women into the military uh, and the hostility toward women who sometimes do make it into the military, which we do know about, occurred here. The men were initially very resentful, and so were Meliagar's uncles, who in ancient Greece and in all and in current life, the image of the uncle is often carrying out the masculine aspect of the sister or the mother. And uh, Atalanta was not a proper young woman to become the future queen. Of Caledon and so you know who was she she was this outdoor woman this rustic who we don't know who her parents are uh, why are you Meliagar as Prince of, of Caledon and hanging together out? They, they kill the boar together they kill the boar and that the the major image is of here she is she's got her bow and an arrow here's this huge boar coming charging down on her she holds her ground and aims the arrow right into the eye, and it staggers, and and she draws first blood. The The boar is wounded, and Meleagar then uses his sword to deal the final blow. And so the two of them have killed the Caledon boar and saved the kingdom. And Meleagar as the one who, who dealt the final blow, then is entitled to the pelt. Now, the pelt is an amazing symbol of, well, of of having killed the Caledon vor but it also was impervious to uh, arrows and, and spears and things, so it make, would make wonderful armor. And so he turns to her and is going to give the pelt to her, which makes the men, and especially his uncles, furious at the idea, if you have to give it away, Meliagar, give it to us, we're your closest relatives. And they grab it from her, or they try to grab it from her, and he kills the two uncles. And so they go back to the castle with the good news and the bad news. You know, the good news is the Caledon boy is dead. The bad news to the mother is that uh, Meleagar, your son, killed your brothers when your brothers tried to grab the pelt away from her, from Atalanta.
1: This just reminds me just how wonderfully complex the greek myths are and the folk tales that come from greece and and it, you, you know it's not like disney okay that one event happens and then it's happily ever after it's just this whole story and that part of the story where Mal- is is then uh he dies and 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 then she is in the wilderness again right, she right. is on her own right. very bereft right. of this Companion she mm-hmm. had. So mm-hmm. she's in the wilderness, and there again the story goes back to almost to the beginning again,
2: and here she is. And the wonderful thing about mythology is that the depth of meaning of them as metaphor, that Atalanta is at home in the wilderness, the world of the castle where she was born and now where uh, Meliagar's mother who is caught in this horrible feeling of of mourning her brothers, and it was done by her son, ends up making the decision that kills him. And again, it goes back to his beginning, when shortly after he was born, Atrophos, one of the three fates, gave his mother the the power of life or death over the son. And as long as this would Remained unburnt. She grabbed us this log out of the fire and said, "As long as this log remains unburnt, your son shall live." And so here, here the mother, uh, metaphorically, by by destroying her son, uh, does what some mothers have done, which metaphorically is to kill off the emotional life of the son um, and leave Atalanta on her own. Venturing back uh, through the wilderness, deciding what it is she's going to do next, right. and every transition that any of us are in can be called into the wilderness. Again, it's not; it's a it's a, it's when we no longer know, we no longer have a definite idea of who we are or what we're going to do. Uh, loss of a relationship, loss of a job, loss of our health—all these things plunge us into this unknown place of we are in the wilderness. And so when we are in the wilderness, we are like Atlanta, mourning who we used to be, the relationship that used to be, the job that used to be, the world, the home, the child, whatever it is that is no longer. We grieve it, and we have to figure out in this wilderness where and what direction we shall go next.
1: And in that wilderness, there there is an opportunity to tap into some un, untapped, Inner resources that we didn't even know we had. I mean, I I know that I have felt that when Michael died in two thousand thirteen, and my partner for mm-hmm. forty one years side by side, and so it was kind of a time of wilderness for me. And what I've discovered in the last year and a half are are re- inner resources that I didn't even know I had. So that. That's part of that that walking the wilderness, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I'm here with Jean Shinoda Bolen and she's the author of Artemis, The Indomitable Spirit in Every Woman. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Jean Bolan B-O-L-E-N, Jean Bolin.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Tom, so you're listening to New Dimensions.
3: Gonna keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward.
1: here with Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin and she's the author of the classic Goddesses in Every Woman, which is now republished. It's now uh, a new anniversary. It's a 30th anniversary edition with a it's new intro right? New
2: intro, new cover. and I'm hoping a new generation of women who will read it because the patterns of archetypes never get outdated. They don't. And
1: I just want to say that book was pivotal in my life, Jean. So I want to Mm -hmm. tell you that face Mm -hmm. to face. Thank you. And especially the part that really grabbed me was one of the goddesses that you you talk about in that book is Athena. Mm -hmm. And you talked about it so differently from the way, let's say, Jung talked about it, that, that Athena had this ability to strategize and she was use math and she could do all of these things that we normally ascribe to the masculine. And you said, no, a woman can have this within her own right, in her own
2: instincts. And that changed my life. It did differ from Jung's idea of anima-animus. He said that every woman has a masculine side called the animus. And the animus... Is a part that does our thinking and and a lot of the spiritual side and assertiveness. That it all comes out of the masculine side, and it by definition is inferior to what a man can do. Actually, however, I also can note that it differs from another one of his theories that said that doesn't make any discrimination between you can be a thinking type woman or a thinking type man, and if you're a thinking type woman, that is your lead. Your leading edge, your leading ability, and Athena's come into the world innately, archetypally geared to think well. And that makes her the strategist. Now, all of the gods and goddesses have strong suits, and if they're going to grow into whole people, they have to develop what Jung called the inferior sides, the sides that aren't natural. But they, So here's Athena, and back in the day, when I 30 years ago, when I wrote Goddesses in Every Woman, Usually, most Athenas were father identified and patriarchal identified, but not now. Now, very often, Athena is a strategizer that helps the Artemis part of the woman to accomplish what she set out to do. So we have Sheryl Sandberg, who wrote Lean In. Well, working with Mark Zuckerberg at at, uh, at Facebook, they are brother sister in energy. In fact, that whole company seems to have that, not, not father up, uh, you know, patriarchal. But brother sister, and um, she has an Artemis passion. She grew when she, she says in her own book that when she was younger, her, she wanted to change the world, make it a better place. Now that is an Artemis quality, the passion to, to help, the passion to, whether it's social justice or the environment or women, or children, or animals. You, there is something about the Artemis archetype that that the sole work that she has, or the archetypal work she has, is to to make a difference in those areas. This is not an Athena, but if you have the Athena abilities and an Artemis passion, then you have the possibility to uh, develop more sisterly relationships. So lean-in circles are like the mid circle. The idea that women have a natural ability to share and be in circles and to support each other. I mean, so I'm just, just delighted. Hormonally, it's... Oxytocin. Act,
1: right, oxytocin, <laughs> that, that men produce more testosterone and women produce more well, actually oxytocin.
2: Uh, yes, and the estrogen incre- increases that tendency that it it's like when... People are under stress. The gender determines what their natural reaction will be. Men will do flight or fight. Women will do tend and befriend. And this is research just done in the in the 21st century. So going back
1: to the story of Aunt Atlanta, she has been in the wilderness. Now she comes back to her father's home. And once more, she's under his direction and thumb. And, and this is where... He's going to have her get married, but she says, well, only under these circumstances I think can you? right yeah. that's correct.
2: She says, uh, I will well he's insisting that that for the sake of the kingdom she must get married. And he she uh, says uh, when she realizes that she had better go along with this program, she she made a stipulation and that stipulation is yes, I will. But the man I will marry has to beat me in a foot race, and if he loses to me, he loses his life. Now, a lot of men uh, looked at this beautiful heiress, uh, realizing that if they got her as a trophy wife, (laughs) they would have a kingdom (laughs) besides. Uh, They came, and and one after another, she raced and beat them. Until finally... um, I think, in a sense, none of them believed that a girl, a woman, could could beat them in a race, and they lost. And then came Hippomenes, who had watched her from afar, loved her, and felt that he had to race her because he loved her, even though he didn't expect to beat her. And the night before the race, he prays to Aphrodite. Now, all all the other men who wanted her hand in marriage prayed to, like, Hermes or Mercury, that he they might beat her by running faster, or Aries or Zeus, or for the power to overcome her, and he prayed for help that he might win her and she might love him.
1: So he prays to the goddess of, of love, love and that, beauty. And beauty, I I just love that part of it. That he 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 went a
2: different direction, and his way worked. In the night. Uh, Aphrodite came to him and gave him three golden apples. When he woke up in the morning, he thought he had a dream, except there were the three apples. So he tucked the apples into his tunic, into the belt of his tunic, and he came t- towards the starting line. And here is here, here's Atalanta waiting for the latest person who is going to race her. And what she sees is Hippomenes holding his waistband. Now, that was the very gesture the last gesture that he she saw Millie Agar do before he died is that he, he doubled over in pain. And here is Hippomenes approaching the, the starting line, holding his arms around his waist. And she goes into reverie and forgets that she's having a race. And so when the starting thing goes off, Hippomenes is not that much of a racer, gets a head start races off and then he she sort of wakes up that oh there's a race on doesn't take her very long to catch up to him when he throws a golden apple one of aphrodite's golden apples in her path and she stops to pick it up and one thought of with, with each apple each apple is a challenge to an artemis woman represented by atalanta uh, about what they could represent and The first apple, she picks up, she looks at it, she sees her face distorted in the curves of the apple, and for the first time, she thinks to herself, I will grow old someday. Now, Artemis women don't. They're so busy involved doing what they're doing that they forget that time is going by. So the first insight that she has is that I am growing older. This is what I will look like when I grow old. That slows down the whole focus and aim of an Artemis. Then there's a second apple. Each time, just as she's getting ready to catch up to him, he drops an apple, and each apple represents something different. And the second apple, as it rolls, reminds her of of how the heads of those uncles rolled. And the thought is, would it have been better to have not loved at all? You see, often an Artemis woman early in life has loved somebody and has been deeply hurt by that love. And so, because she can archetypally shut that down and focus, she can she can put it behind her. She puts things behind her a lot easier than a lot of of women can do. Now the memory comes back, and she remembers the good times as well. Would it have be- been better to not have loved him at all because of the loss? So she she got in touch with some emotional part of herself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third apple, just before the finish line. He drops the apple just at the finish line. If she picks it up, she'll she'll lose the race, and Hippomenes will have her as his wife. If she ignores the apple, she will win the race. And she picks up the apple. So she kind of
1: had a choice there. I she think knew. she did. She 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 knew if she picked up that apple, she'd lose. So yes. somehow. Yes.
2: And what did that apple represent? Well, for, for my interpretation, based on what. Artemis women do in fact face is the whole question about procreation or creation or cre- either having a baby or being creative. The younger young woman who's been on fast track, uh, accomplished, aiming for things, and somewhere about early 30s or something, it's like an urge to have a baby, a uh, pregnancy, slows her down. The race gets to be old. I, you know, I've done that. I've been gotten the promotions. I've been honored and stuff. What about a baby? And so there's a whole consciousness shift. The other one for either a younger woman or a woman who's been an Artemis into her 40s and 50s and maybe even 60s is that it is a question of creativity. I have done it, whatever I've done, well, gotten recognized for it or whatever, but my own creativity I've not done. And so the question of that third apple is creativity, doing something out of the love and beauty of form. or uh, So this is when often there's new creative juices. So I, I'm thinking about these apples as, as Aphrodite, who brings a consciousness of the beauty of things and the feeling of things and reminds the, the Artemis woman or Atalanta of who and what she has loved in her life. And this is a whole different dimension. So it's a story that really it, applies to a lot of women. It does, and
1: and I'm thinking too when that happens, and when a woman or or man—I mean, I'm going to include men in this—they uh, they start to manifest some creative longing that's been dormant, let's say, for a while. There's a kind of They know they're on the right track when they feel a natural enthusiasm and vitality. And I think that you even speak about that in in the book. It's like another
2: energy or another archetype comes to life. You know, even if you are so clearly an Artemis or any of the other archetypes, male or female, there are the other ones that are kind of often waiting in the wing, so to speak. And you can kind of use up the energy of one in a sense and and something new starts to to move and it has to do with what's going on inside and also what you're attracted to outside suddenly you're attracted to to do different things or you project something and onto somebody that carries it for you and you are in love with with an idea or a person or a place that you now captivate you well that's that's not something you did with your mind, and it's not something you did on purpose. It's something that in, your, in the archetypal world of the unconscious, it stirred, and it moved, and it is bringing to life a new energy for you. And this is what happens if you keep on growing as you grow older. I'm
1: here with Dr. Jean Shinoda Boland. She's the author of Artemis, The Indomitable Spirit in Every Woman, and also Goddesses in Every Woman, Gods in Every Man. And Goddesses in Older Women. And Goddesses in <laughs> Older Women, and crones don't why. I mean, you're just so prolific. Look, You must look her up on our website, and go to our website, JeanBolin.com, B-O-L-E-N, com. or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
3: Going to keep on moving forward, keep on moving forward. gonna keep on moving proudly. Keep on moving proudly. Keep on moving proudly. proudly. Never turning back, never turning
1: I'm here with Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin, and she's the author of Artemis, The Indomitable Spirit in Every Woman. You use the word indomitable spirit right there in the title. So I'd love for you to say something about why you use that word and why that's important.
2: Indomitable means untamed. It means that there's a part, unsubdued, untamed. It means it's a part of you no matter what. That is not victimized, and this is really important. Especially when I go to the UN and I hear all these things that are happening to girls and women in the, in lots of places in the world. But uh, where there are also girls being trafficked in, in the United States. Lots of bad things happen, and there is incest, and there is rape, and there is a whole litany of bad things that happen to girls and women. But if they have a if they have Artemis as an archetype, there is a part of them that remains. Virginal that remains uh, untamed, unsubdued, the one in, unto herself part of her, so she becomes a raped non-victim. Not true that you now she has been raped, but she some innate part of her remains not the victim, and that is why I use indomitable. It's also an energy, a will to live, a will to to. Uh, to go for something like justice and and fight for it. It's a wonderful word to apply to you don't, to a girl, that there's something in her. Often it's held in and quiet, that's indomitable. She will make it through this period of her life, and she will have a vision about who she might be later on. She is not subdued. And there's it's it's that part that is wild, as in Mary Oliver's line. Uh, Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That word wild, that's the untamed, indomitable part in women. Right. Has not subjected herself
1: to uh, conventionality and, and the way, you know, others have kind of put on her some expectation of how she is to be.
2: And that may be true. All her life, when she knows that she's—and and maybe she keeps it alive through what she reads uh, because she doesn't actually have the power to change things at her age. Um, so we have—and uh, w- the heroines are coming into the, the culture now, like the Hunger Games heroine Katniss Everdeen yes. is an Atalanta Artemis with her bow and arrow. And things like that. So, I mean, there's or something... earlier
1: on in decades before, it was Wonder Woman. Yes. For some of us older women, <laughs> we, we we identified with Wonder Woman, yes. you know, that had that quality. Um, and also in that that word, indomitable, it, it's like it, any of us who are active in some sort of political action or social change or anything, it, it,
2: you need that kind of... St- staying power. You do. You do. You need the perseverance to keep on keeping on often. Because
1: things might not look like they're moving or shifting, but
2: uh, and in fact, it might even look like it's going backwards. Oh, that's been my experience with uh, being an advocate for UN Fifth Women's World Conference, for example, and the metaphor of the labyrinth, which has U-turns in it, serves as a a kind of inspiration as an image because it's part of the path of getting to the center, to getting to the goal. And the fact is that there are twists and turns in the path and it is just part of the journey. And that's true of life too. So that so, so you think that everything's going to turn out chronologically boom 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 and there is a sudden change.
1: Just to uh, to underline that the first time I ever saw anyone walk the labyrinth the the shark one, one. Uh, and um it was on a stage and there were several women and they were kind of trotting through it mm-hmm. and I, I i was just watching it and i noticed that some of them got very close to the outer edge or some of them got very close to the center but suddenly they're back out on the outer edge and and it was interesting until I walked it myself and could see that there are moments that you seem like you're almost home, almost to the center, and suddenly you find yourself out on the edge again. But then there's another U-turn, and it takes you back in, and that's the whole point of it, isn't it?
2: Yes, it's also, it's also true of the soul's journey, that our soul's journey is like that. It isn't just a straight line, and there are... There are what appears to be a setbacks. Everybody has setbacks. Everybody has suffering. Everybody loses and wins at certain times of their lives. And so to not give up is one of the strengths of the Artemis archetype is to persevere. And to persevere without becoming bitter about the fact that this is your chosen cause or your chosen journey, and it gives your life meaning to do it. And yes, there will be setbacks, and yes, it will seem at times as if the world is against whatever it is that you're trying to do, but each of us adds to the possibility and to the energy to critical mass and tipping point. And because I grew up, and I grew up during the I was actually in college and medical school during the women's movement. Uh, I saw what could happen when women got together and with the sister archetype. This is the archetype of the women's movement. The feminist is Artemis. She's naturally a sisterhood person. She's naturally uh, has a sense of justice and she bonds with, with other other women. And so the circle or the consciousness-raising group then becomes a unit for change and change happened so fast between 1963 and 1970. 1970 becomes the uh, women's movement decade. And great changes happened because tipping point critical mass happened, which is the basis of the ideas of Million circle, which is the idea of sisterhood. And that has to do with women with this archetype.
1: Awesome. And I, I want to reveal to our listeners, Jean is a convener of the million circle. So it's something dear to both of our hearts. And these circles, um, I'm thinking of how when we get together and someone might be going in in the circle, going through something, some challenge. One of the things that we can do for each other is that we can help each other remember our song. And sing it to each other when we have forgotten it.
2: That's so true. That is so true. We we, we mirror back. We we are witnesses to each other's story. And the particular thing about the million circle uh, is that there's a spiritual base, and I do think that that uh, there is a place for energy that comes from that spiritual, whatever you call it. I mean, this is also the basis of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's assuming that there is a source of energy that you can draw from in meditation and prayer. Um, and so th- to meet in a circle and have a problem and have these other others in the circle or others on, e- on email say, is one say, I'm I'm going through a rough time. Pray for me, in whatever way anybody prays. It's there's not like one way to pray. Any there just isn't. But there, but each prayer taps into some energy source. So marry feminism to spirituality, bring in the sense of the the goddess images as archetypes and as energies, feminine energies. And one of the things that is also interesting is that it's never too, you're, you're never too old to grow into another archetype. So there are late blooming Artemis women. I, I've been emphasizing the ones that come in from the very beginning. But at 60, I'm seeing a lot of women becoming in, coming into circles and starting to appreciate an aspect of themselves that they hadn't before. And finding their voice. And as soon as you find your voice and speak up for something heartful and matters to you, you are discovering the late-blooming Artemis in yourself. And I'm also thinking
1: how in in this configuration, these circles that you're talking about, that we come together and we mirror for one another and encourage one another and, and pray for one another, mm-hmm. however it mm-hmm. is that we support one another— this in this particular time, it is a, a a time not to be isolated. It's a time for that kind of coming together. It's imperative that we have a community that that helps us through, and, and that we don't. It's not the single hero walking into the forest in their own path, but that we are asking for help from others as well.
2: And circles provide that, uh, and also uh, there's a whole generation of men who were raised by women of, of, in the women's movement, who were encouraged and have developed both their masculine and feminine side. Just as, as as uh, Gloria Steinem has said about us, that we have become the men we were supposed to marry, meaning that we had the we've had the education and the professionalism and the ability to, to be strong. That we used to look to men. For, and now we find that we have done this ourselves. Well, as we did that, we encouraged the men in our lives to grow into the inner women as well. I remember when they said that the woman who needed to be liberated was a man, and was a woman in every man. I mean, yeah. that is so true. That the idea of becoming a whole person has to do with the gods and the goddesses that are present as archetypal energies in all of us.
1: And so when now now we're finding these just precious men that seem to be more whole unto themselves and not just depending on the woman to be the nurturer, but they have some self-nurturing that they can do for themselves. We've run out of time. I am so grateful that you came and joined us today, Jean. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege. I've been speaking with (laughs) Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin, and she's the author of Artemis, The Indomitable Spirit in Every Woman. And gods in every man, uh, goddesses in every woman, goddesses in older women. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, jeanbowlin.com, jeanbowlin.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis Tom's. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3514.